listening to Ahead of Tomorrow, the podcast that discusses topics to help today's workforce prepare for and stay ahead of tomorrow. The idea of the future can be overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. We'll help you prepare by sharing insights and research from today's industry professionals, thought leaders, and real people. Now, please welcome your host, Keith Keating. And on this episode, we'll be exploring the lost art of critical thinking and discussing ways that we can begin to think more critically in this age of information. So to help me with this topic, I've invited Bonnie Beresford, an accredited PhD data scientist, author, speaker, and genuine self-proclaimed data geek. Bonnie spends a lot of time helping organizations find the story behind the piles of data. So Bonnie, thank you for joining. Keith, thank you for having me to discuss this really important topic of critical thinking, especially in today's age where we are inundated with data. And I do like talking to organizations about this. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I delivered a, a what was a virtual webinar called Data, Fact or Fiction. And the whole idea was to help people become better consumers of data. So your topic is absolutely timely. And I love the tagline, fact or fiction, because there is so much misinformation out there. And in fact, I was doing some research recently around even just the, the word misinformation. And it sounds playful. And we've got all of these other euphemisms that we're starting to use, like counter knowledge, half truths, alternative facts, alternative truth, conspiracy theory, and my favorite, or actually least favorite, fake news. And all of those are saying the exact same thing, which is really a lie. And it's become part of our normal modus operandi that we almost can accept that we have these the misinformations, the fictional data, the fictional truths. And the reason this is so important is that we have to be better stewards of data, of information, to be able to look past that, to find out what is the truth behind that? All these things that you've just talked about, we don't know what to believe. And so we tend to believe things that confirm our own personal bias. And that confirmation bias gets really dangerous because then we're not open to new information. You know, and, and that gets especially dangerous. So what we're trying to do with critical thinking and this data factor fiction concept is to become more critical thinkers about it. How do we make sense of what we're seeing out there? How do we figure out the truth from the false, the fake from the accurate? And how do we put a lens on it so that we can have confidence that we're making decisions based on the right information? You brought up confirmation bias, and I think that's a really important topic to talk about for a minute because confirmation bias is real and it's very, very dangerous, as well as misinformation. The confirmation bias gives us confidence to share the misinformation, to share the articles that we're getting in our social media, and it creates this cycle of reinforcing our same beliefs, even the untrue beliefs. And it creates what's also known as an echo chamber effect. I don't know if you saw the recent research from Columbia University where it talked about getting your news from social media. And it had found that 59% of adults share news based on the headlines without even reading the story. And that's kind of scary because headlines are intentionally sensationalized. 
And when we grab those headlines and then forward them on to all of our friends in our group or our email distribution list or whatever, we're propagating that and we're not even sure what we're propagating. But because it goes along with our beliefs, we feel comfortable forwarding it on to others who share our beliefs. And so we get this more entrenched groupthink going on. And it helps lead to a further gap of being an uninformed nation, really. And we have this lack of public trust in the journalists that we've been dealing with for a while. And it's easy for us to blame the journalists for our lack of news literacy. But really, at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to be good stewards of that information, to make sense out of that information. And in fact, you use that phrase often, sense-making of data. What is sense-making of data and why does it warrant a conversation? Well, let me take us back to the fact that we are inundated with information. The World Economic Forum told us that at the beginning of 2020, the amount of data in the world was estimated at 44 zettabytes. I didn't even know what a zettabyte was, but it's 1,000 bytes to the seventh power. So it's like 21 zeros times 44. And that we know we're creating more every day. Now, this data that they're talking about isn't scientific data. I mean, that's part of it. And it's part of your banking transactions, but it's also every Snapchat. It's also every picture of your cat rolling around on its back. It's every picture of somebody's toddler taking their first step. All of that is data out there adding to these mounds and mounds along with the real news, the fake news, the whatever. We're in this world of information overload. But in fact, I heard another graphic designer actually said it's not information overload, it's non-information overload because Mm. it's just data. It's not yet information. And we are just consuming data. We're so busy. We don't take time to make sense of it. Sense-making is a process of creating awareness and understanding when you've got complexity and uncertainty. So when you've got piles of data and you're not quite sure what it all means, and you're trying to figure it out, that's sense-making. When we simply read a headline and forward it, we're not doing any sense-making. We are lazy. (laughs) Is sense-making similar to critical thinking? It is. It really is. Sense-making is often referred to when it comes to making decisions, because you need to make sense of things or to decide what you're going to do or not do. And critical thinking is absolutely part of it. You know what, Keith, I'm going to quote the foundation for critical thinking on their definition, because that might help us. And they say it is the intellectually disciplined process of actively and skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and evaluating information. That's a lot. That's a lot. You know, it kind of, for me, it kind of boils down to one word, curious. We need to be curious about it. Why? It's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Gets us thinking. You know, it has us ask the next question. That's what we're not doing. We're not asking the next question. When we see those headlines and it's confirming what we've already believed, we think that it's legitimate and we forward it on and we continue to perpetuate the misinformation. Right. We stop. We don't question. We don't analyze. We don't bring in new information and synthesize the two and say, huh, there's some merit to this, but this part I challenge. And we're not, we're not doing that. You know, this idea of being curious, taking it away from the news right now, I take it back to school and grade school. Did you ever wonder what would happen to American history if they taught it from West to East versus East to West? I can't say that I have ever thought of it. Because we are taught one way. And so we're actually in our schools, are we stifling curiosity sometimes by teaching things one direction and that this is the right way? I think that school absolutely stifles 
curiosity. I remember growing up being told more often than not, you know, sit down, don't speak, you're interrupting. In fact, my father recently sent me my grade school transcripts and I was reading through them the other day and the amount of times that I was called disruptive that I wasn't paying attention, that I wasn't focused. And their comments were, Keith could be so much better if he just applied himself. How much time did you spend in the hall? That was my second classroom. The thing is, I wasn't a bad student. It's not that I was playing around or being disruptive, but the way that they were teaching couldn't keep my attention. And so I, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to ask questions. And I can distinctively remember being told to stop asking questions. The same at church. I went to Sunday school and I remember asking the first question about evolution. You sit down and you be quiet. I grew up in the age of the epidemic, I'll call it an epidemic, of Ritalin. Everyone I knew had ADD or ADHD, and everyone was on Ritalin. My sibling was put on Ritalin because that was what the doctors just believed was an easy, or I can't say what they believed, but that was what was being done is our kids were being put on Ritalin to keep them quiet because they were, quote, disruptive. They're kids, they're curious. And what are we doing when we're putting kids on Ritalin or teaching to a test, because our teachers are evaluated on test scores, the schools are evaluated on test scores, so they're teaching to the test. And when you teach to the test, that implies there's a right answer. An infant, a toddler, is curious beyond all means. I mean, they are exploring everything, including putting keys in outlets. You know, <laughs> they're trying everything. And then we put people into a structured environment and we tell them there's a right and a wrong answer. And we tell them to calm down and don't ask questions. And why do you suppose then as adults, we're not challenging the headlines that are being put in front of us? We've had that curiosity kind of sucked out of us. And when mm -hmm. we get to put it back in, we get energized. That's where innovation comes from. Curiosity is essential to organizations for innovation. Critical thinking, unfortunately for me, has never been a strong skill set of mine because I remember, as what we're talking about, having that curiosity stifled in school, at home, from a religious standpoint. And I would say it wasn't until maybe 10, 15 years ago that I can recall poignantly starting to ask questions. It's a skill. It's a skill like any other that takes practice. It's like a muscle. You have to build that up. And I think for many people, including myself, part of it is unlearning that behavior that we were taught of not questioning, not being curious, not exploring ideas. For me, I'm building that up every year. I'm looking for opportunities to continuously ask questions and pull apart news articles and headlines and, and just statements that people are making. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is by Alvin Toffler. The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn unlearn and relearn. When I first heard that, it resonated with me, especially from that unlearning aspect. I've seen it a lot of places. I'm sure that you're familiar with it. Absolutely. And in my doctoral work, that was one of the first things they told us is welcome to the program. You're going to need to unlearn. Inciting Toffler, just like you did. I love that concept of unlearning. It's something that I find very powerful in our field of learning and development. But here's a shock. At least it was a shock to me when I just learned this. It's a beautifully prodigious quote, but he didn't say it. He said parts of it, and part of it he's quoting someone else, and the rest, who knows? But I've I've actually been using it. Oh, seriously? Yeah. So somebody put in, they took a few of his words and put in some filler? Yes. 
So I've been using that quote for years, and it wasn't until recently I was writing an article. I had used that quote in the article. The article was about unlearning, and of course, I started off with that quote. And luckily, I had an editor who was fact-checking everything in my article, and he called me out on it. You know, I hate to tell you this, but that is not a quote from him. I got the book that it's supposedly from, which is Future Shock, which I had actually never read. Alvin Toffler wrote it in the (laughs) 70s. So it gave me a chance to read the book, and I couldn't find the quote. But I did, in chapter 18, there are fragments of that quote. The closest part is Toffler is is actually quoting a psychologist, Herbert Gerjoy. And so it turns out that Toffler was using that more of as a paraphrase. I see that quote on LinkedIn probably once a week within my network. And I have to say that I'm humbled and I'm a bit shocked to find out that it wasn't his quote because it's really made me take a step back and explore my own relationship with critical thinking, which is why I wanted to have this conversation today. To our listeners, please note, That is actually not an accurate quote. It's a misrepresentation. So stop using it. Are you familiar with Levine's truth default theory? I would be lying if I said yes. It's going to resonate with you. So the idea is we assume that what we read or the headlines or the people we talk to are honest and truthful. We just default to that. And we don't act like sober-minded scientists methodically looking for evidence until the case against it, the case against the statement becomes strong, which is like when your professor said, go find the quote, because you were resisting. Mm -hmm. You were so sure. (laughs) You were resisting. I'd seen it so many times. Constant. You, You know, if you talk about future of work or you talk about learning or unlearning, everyone uses that quote. And so I thought there's no way that everyone is wrong. And they are. So until we are presented with enough evidence to push us to the brink, we don't challenge it. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the issue here is that we aren't as skeptical as we need to be. Why? Why do we first assume everything that we read is truthful? We want to. This truth default theory is just the way we're wired. It's a lot of work to challenge something. I wonder too, though, if it's generational in the sense that I remember growing up your parents were your first truth. What they told you was truth. You can't go swimming 30 minutes after you eat. You can't go outside with your hair wet or you're going to catch a cold. All of these. Oh, yeah. And don't look at me cross-eyed. Your eyes will get stuck like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our access to information was limited. It was basically our parents, our teachers, libraries, and Encyclopedia Britannica's, which many of the people may have had at home. That was that was my source of truth to, you know, doing any research paper, you went to the Encyclopedia Britannica. I remember distinctly getting to the age where the internet became almost a fact checker for your parents. And then there was this shift that, gosh, your parents didn't have all the information and they weren't telling you the right information either. So then it almost shifted to the internet being the source of truth. And the internet almost replaced our parents for giving us that source of truth. And then it shifted at some point to where everybody had access and could be posting, where we went from believing it to now anybody can post anything. Anybody can make a website that looks accurate. We can create and post our thoughts, our beliefs. And because it's on there, we then think that it's truthful. That puts so much more of a burden truly on the consumer of that information and we all, you know, we used to Google it. Where'd you get it? Oh, I went, I, I Googled it. Oh, well, mm-hmm. it must be true. <laughs> and in this world, though, where we're talking about fake news and alternate realities and that sort of thing, maybe people are becoming a little more skeptical. What I'm sensing is they're becoming more skeptical, but they're not 
taking the next step to go investigate and prove or disprove something. Maybe they're just more cynical and not the skepticism that will lead them to to take some sort of action. I would build on that and say, I think that people are becoming skeptical of anything that's against their ideas. Yeah. So I, I, I see and hear people questioning, but it tends to be anything that's against their own confirmation bias or outside of their echo chamber. You know, we block people on Facebook that don't agree with us. Stop following them on Twitter. And that just reinforces that echo chamber even more. So then we're just hearing and seeing and repeating the same ideas and beliefs that we already had. Coming back to the critical thinking, one of the hallmarks of critical thinking is having an open mind and being objective. Mm. When you are intentionally limiting your sources of input, it's very difficult to be objective because you're not hearing all sides. So it takes a certain disposition to say, I am open. I am going to investigate and listen to both sides or all sides. Ask those tough questions of, does this really make sense? I mean, let's take it from a very simple, simple thing, non-controversial. Let's say you had a headline, Keith, that said, increased consumption of ice cream leads to shark attacks. Then we'd all stop eating ice cream. Right. Now, there is a correlation. The two ice cream sales go up, shark attacks go up. So we stop eating ice cream. But common sense. Now, what would you think? You get that. I'm going to put you through a little critical thinking here. Does anything anything have you scratching your head about the truth or fallacy of that? How could eating ice cream impact shark attacks or affect shark attacks? Right. So what you might ask, what else is going on? If, the, if there's data that shows these two things are traveling together, what else could be going on? And looking for other explanations. Well, you typically eat ice cream when it's hot. So that means it's warmer weather. And when there's warmer weather, you're probably going to be spending more time in the water. Wow. See, you are a critical thinker, Keith. (laughs) But it's just that kind of looking at something and saying, does this pass the sniff test? And what else could be going on? What else is happening here? Mm -hmm. And asking the next question and asking the next question. There's a quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, you know, actually, as I'm saying this, I've never researched if it's a real quote. <laughs> so I will well, do we, that we, after we this. Go on Wikipedia, Keith, and we could find out. <laughs> There's a quote that someone said. It's attributed to F. Scott Fitzgerald. And that is that first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your brain at the same time and still be able to function. That's what we're missing right now is it feels so binary. It feels I'm right and you're wrong. It's either yes or no. There's no in-between. It feels like we've almost lost that ability to explore that we may have confirmation bias, that we might be stuck in an echo chamber, or that there might be something else that we need to learn. And the issue is that if we think we know everything, learning is impossible. And that's, to me, why critical thinking is so important for us. Absolutely. And again, that that curiosity. And I think one of the other challenges that we have right now is we talk about in the data age, information age, there's this battle that's going on for our attention. The more data, the more information, the more distractions that we have. And the media has so much more competition right now and trying to fight to keep our attention. It's like there's an underlying sensationalism of fear that's used against us so that it grabs our attention, so that we click on it and and look at it more. It it feels like we're living more in a fear-based society. And so you've talked about the need for us to be better consumers of data. 
Why is that important, especially when it comes to the headline sensationalism? Coming back to the sense-making, if all we're doing is consuming 140 characters at a time, we're not really learning a whole lot. We're not digging deep. We're not really thinking about it. And we're not thinking about the why and the what for behind it. And when we stop having that kind of deep thinking, we start to lose original thought because we're just all parroting each other. Knowledge is built by synthesizing. It's taking a piece of knowledge from point A and a piece of knowledge from point B. It might be from MSNBC and Fox. I don't care. Put them together, have a mashup and ask, what am I seeing here? Where are the overlaps? Where are the disconnects? Why? And it's that synthesizing that is part of critical thinking that starts to create new knowledge and new and deeper understanding. I mean, think of right now in COVID, if we had scientists who were not open to new things and trying new experiments, mashing things up and testing and challenging and critiquing and digging and iterating. Those scientists are a beautiful example of critical thinking with everything they're doing right now. We need people like that. And I contend we could use a few more and not just in the sciences, in every place, in public service, in private service, in our companies, getting back to the innovation. Innovation, that's what those doctors are doing. They're innovating and it's critical thinking. It's digging in and asking why and why doesn't that work? And what if I did this? And where did you get that from? And what's the research behind that? How could I mash this up? and come up with something new, whether it's a new product or a new drug. So why do you think then that we stop at just the headlines? I think we're inundated with information. I think we are so much on information overload. You cannot even go to a website now and get just a single message because you've got advertising going down one side, you've got pop-ups coming in, and there is so much coming at you, and then you get a text message, and then you get a Twitter feed. The human brain has a hard time processing all of that. And again, getting back to the sense-making. Which of these are important? Which do I pay attention to? And it's so much easier to look at a tweet or look at a headline and think you've got it. It takes effort to focus to do the critical thinking. But once you start the critical thinking, you will never again watch a news broadcast or read anything the same because you're always going to be skeptical and say, I wonder if they considered. Remember, Keith, the uh, the Trident commercial, four to five dentists recommend Trident? Mm-hmm. And that was, that. I don't know how many years that was on, but that, I mean, we can still cite the tagline. That one always bugged me. So Keith, let's, let's apply some critical thinking. So what's the first question that comes to your mind? How many dentists were part of this study? Right. Were there five or were there 5,000? Is this 4,000 out of 5,000 or four out of five? Okay. What else do you wonder about? What is the rest of the story? What else aren't we hearing? For example, is it possible that five out of five actually recommended something else? Okay. So now you're starting to wonder about the research methodology behind and what were the questions that were asked, which is awesome. So what was the research methodology? Because sometimes research can be pretty shoddy. What questions did they ask? How many people did they ask it of? What did they really say? It turns out there really was a survey and they did ask more than five dentists, but they never ever in the survey asked about Trident. The survey was, if your patients are going to chew gum, is sugarless gum better than sugar gum? (laughs) And of course the answer is yes, dentists don't want you grinding away on a mouthful of sugar. And so Trident lifted that and put it here and said that four out of five dentists recommend Trident, which isn't true at all. Dentists say, if you're going to chew gum, please just chew sugarless gum. But once you start questioning it, then you kind of want to know. I was working with a learning leader, Keith, and we were doing a net promoter score on his learning academy. And a net promoter score asks 
how likely are you to recommend my academy to, to a colleague? We calculated the score and it's on a negative 100 to 100 score. Anyway, we came up with a 39. The question was, is that good? So we applied critical thinking to that. How would you know if that's good? So we went and did some research of other net promoter scores, and it turned out we had the net promoter scores for Harvard and for Wharton Business School, and they were around in the 40 to 50 range. So we thought, wow, if we're 39 and they're in the 40 to 50, we're pretty good. But then another article appeared in Training Industry Magazine that said the average net promoter score for corporate learning institutions was minus 19. So now we're saying, well, if they're minus 19 as a corporate university and we're 39, are we really that good? So we asked the next question, how does our research differ from the training industry research? And it boiled down to the sizes of the organizations. Ours was a very large organization. And the next big thing was the demographics. The population that gave the minus 19, I think it was 85% of them were under age 50. The organization I was working with, 65% of them were over 50. So we're starting to see by peeling back the data on this, we're able to make better decisions and understand what's going on. Rather than taking a net promoter score of 39 and pulling it up the flagpole and saluting, we're saying, well, what does that really mean and is it really good? And at the end of the day, what we found out is younger learners don't really like our training. Older learners do. And that had big impacts for this organization. That's also a great example of sense making or storytelling with the data and understanding the context in which that data is represented. Context is really important. Automation will kill 73 million U.S. jobs by 2030, and 800 million jobs will be destroyed in the next 13 years. These are the two articles that I've seen repeated the most over the last few years when it comes to the future of work, and are actually what caught my attention and prompted my interest. How would you apply critical thinking to these headlines? Well, your first one, I think you said, was it 73 million jobs lost? And the next one was 800 million? You don't need a PhD to do the math there and say that there's a big difference. So the, the question is, what are they measuring? What is a job? And are they talking about tasks? Are they talking about named job titles? Because we know that job titles almost mean nothing these days. We need kind of an operational definition of what they mean by job in order to interpret that. I also, Keith, wonder if that is a net number we know that automation is going to create jobs as well. The robotics and all that, I mean, all this is going to create jobs just like the Industrial Revolution did, just like data entry did for clerical workers. And all of this progression adds jobs as well as takes away jobs. So I'd ask, are these net numbers or are these just what we're losing and not what we're adding? And when you start digging in, you find a quite a different story. But without the sense making, we could have people thinking the apocalypse is upon us. When we have that fear, we're either frozen or we're fleeing or we're fighting rather than proactively planning so that we can address that change before it happens so that we are prepared. It's important that we look for the research. For me, that's one of the best practices is I no longer stop with just reading the article. I want to read that next level down or that next few levels down. I want to know where you got your research from. And you'll tend to find there's this trail, they're citing a different article. That article is citing somebody else's article. 
And when you start to get curious and you pull back the onion, you can see the echo chamber for yourself. Sometimes the research is difficult for the layman to digest. And that could be part of the the challenge too. Reading academic journals and research papers is not for the faint of heart. There are some sources that do a very nice job of what's called research to practice, where they digest those articles for you and then present that the findings in more of a layman's terms. That could be something to seek out. Going on your your favorite, Keith, I know your new favorite is Google Scholar, your new best friend, Uh, but Google Scholar or even just Google and and research to practice because that helps really uncover some of the the noise of, of academic journals that's hard to interpret. But there are other studies that, like these ones that are quoted, uh, the McKenzie one, that you can get the research report. You can just read it and you just have to have that, I'm going to go back to the curious mind, whether whether you want to call it skepticism or just curious, because skepticism comes with a chip on your shoulder. Curiosity gets you back to that infant who's learning to walk and discover new things. And the more we can get back to that stage, the more open our mind is to alternative opinions and perspectives. Asking the next question, just keep asking questions. Why? What? How? Is there anything else that you would recommend in terms of how we can close our own skill gap on critical thinking? We have to exercise that muscle in our brain. Once you start asking the questions, it becomes it becomes a, a second nature to you. But it's really being willing to invest that mental energy in asking that question, in being curious. Einstein, and, and Keith, I do believe this quote is attributed to Albert Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> he said, curiosity is more important than knowledge. Think about that. You can know all kinds of things, but if you're not curious, that knowledge isn't going to grow. Keith, when it comes to critical thinking, I mean, first, when you see something, whether it's a research report, a headline, any data you see, you know, does it pass the sniff test? Thinking back to the sharks and ice cream, does it pass the sniff test? Does it make sense? What's the source of it? Is it Wikipedia? Is it a tweet? Or is it a McKinsey research report, which you might take a little more seriously? Second, what else should be considered in this argument? What other things could be going on? What's their research design? Again, thinking back to the Trident thing with Trident gum. What is the research practice there? What what else could be going on in that? Third, is the data credible? Is it even the right data? And you talk about your 73 million versus 800 million jobs. Is it the right data? Are they defining job the same way in both studies. And then finally, be curious and just, just question everything, including, and maybe this is really important to close on, including your own mental models, your own bias. Because even though we try to be objective, we come in with our own biases. And that immediately puts filters on what we are open to learning. We need to recognize our biases, remove those filters, and be curious. And that's exactly what unlearning is. Unlearning is taking a step back to look at your belief systems in this example and giving up or abandoning those behaviors or those thoughts. It's not about forgetting. It's about making a cognitive decision to choose an alternative mental model. And that's imperative when we have these echo chambers, when we're in our loop of confirmation bias We have to be open to that change. Yes. Keith, you've done a lot of talking and writing about power skills and how how power skills can prepare us 
for tomorrow, whatever tomorrow may bring. I, I hope that critical thinking is one of those power skills and maybe akin to that also is curiosity. Because if people don't know what critical thinking is, people do know what curiosity is. And it is a skill. It absolutely needs to be in the top five list of our skills for the future. Keith, it's been fun chatting about this and you can tell I'm passionate about it. And when I when I do a workshop like that data factor fiction and I start seeing the light bulbs go on with people and having them start to ask that next question to dig deeper, they get excited. It exercises their mental muscle. When people start doing the critical thinking, they get energized. And it's such, it's such a positive way forward for us in these tough times with so much data that we've got to weed through on our own to have some critical thinking skills. So thanks for bringing attention to this topic. I love critical thinking and I love learning more about it, exercising that muscle, because it gives me the opportunity to learn and unlearn, but it also gives me the ability to know for myself whether or not something I'm seeing or reading or hearing is true. It gives me the skill set to be able to break it down and make and formulate thoughts for myself. Right. And if all, you're, if all you're doing is retweeting or forwarding on a headline, you're not coming up with your own thoughts about anything. And I'll say that critical thinking is not easy. It, <laughs> it takes work. And there are moments where, at least for me, I get mentally exhausted and I don't want to put in the work. And the output from that work is extremely valuable. Critical thinking can be a lot of work, indeed. Think, though, of the first part of it is at least asking the question. Whether or not you go seek out the answer at that moment to validate, to prove or disprove what you've just seen or read, the fact that you are now asking that question, in and of itself, is evidence of the beginnings of critical thinking. You're no longer taking it at face value. You're no longer just consuming everything that's fed to you. You're applying your own intellect and challenging it. And it helps us to stop reinforcing these existing beliefs that we have so that we can unlearn and it helps us to be open to those new ideas. So I wanna recap real quick. Bonnie has shared a number of practical approaches to apply to start thinking critically, encouraging curiosity, questioning everything. Look at the sources, look at the citations, think for yourself and follow the data. Is it sound? Keith, that was a great summary. I'm just summarizing your articulate and intelligent words. Well, this sure has been fun. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? I am on LinkedIn, Bonnie Beresford. Happy to connect with your listeners and to continue the discussion. Once again, Bonnie, thank you for joining us to lead us in this important discussion on critical thinking. It's been my pleasure, Keith. And to our listeners, please reach out to me on LinkedIn so we can keep this conversation going. Thank you for joining this episode of Ahead of Tomorrow. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss out on more insights to help you be future ready. If you have a topic you would like covered, please drop us a line at podcast at keithkeating.com.